Good morning, church family. Appreciate all that are helping serve this morning. Uh, Even Bob Hancock, who hasn't been able to come back. Um, We've had a couple scripture readings now that have been done virtually, and that's a great way to um, just reach out and let some of our Uh, some of our folks that aren't coming back yet to be able to be engaged in our service. So we're really grateful for Bob Hancock's scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. As Christians, we talk a lot about maturity. Our scripture reading was about maturity, and as a church, we talk a lot about maturity. As parents, we want our kids to mature, not just physically or intellectually, but we want them to mature spiritually, don't we? All of us that are in Christ long to push away from milk and eat more solid food. We long to bear more and more fruit of the Spirit. We long to be more self-controlled. We long for our prayer lives to be deeper and our time in the Word to be less hurried. We long for greater maturity in the Lord. Certainly our individual maturity is of great importance, but as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he spoke more about the maturity of the church as a whole. So yes, we should strive to become more and more mature in our faith as individuals. Of course we should. But the goal of Paul in our text today is that all of us, the community of God, would mature together as a church. As I say those words together, a mature church, what are some images that come to your mind? Maybe when we think about mature churches, we think about large, beautiful buildings with sprawling properties that look like they've existed for many years. Maybe we think about steeples that are taller than any other building around them. Or auditoriums that seat thousands upon thousands of people. Maybe when we think of a mature church, we think of dynamic worship services or moving preachers that captivate the audience. Maybe we think of the great programs that a church offers that engage kids and young adults. Obviously, these things are great and important things to have, but are these the things that make churches mature, or are there even more fundamental things? What about us here as a congregation at Sunset? We obviously have many very mature Christians among us, but how can we collectively grow even more in our maturity as a church? What are some things that we can do? Because I think that we would all agree that as society keeps moving in frightening directions, and as the world keeps growing more and more hostile to Christianity, it is going to be vital that the church continues to grow in its maturity so that we can weather strong storms together, so that we can be there for one another when life inevitably knocks one of us down. Fortunately for us, Paul gives us six things a mature church is committed to so that we can grow in our maturity at sunset. Let's read those things together in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you're like me, you probably enjoy reading and watching things that are well thought out and organized. This is one reason why I think that I enjoy reading Paul's letters. This is one reason that makes Paul's letters so wonderful. Um, They're organized. They're well thought out. So far in our study of Ephesians, we have looked at Ephesians 1 through 3, where Paul has beautifully laid out exactly what it is that God has done for us in Christ. He's told us in chapter 1 about all of the amazing blessings we have in Christ. He's told us in chapter 2 about how God saved us by His grace. He's told us in chapter 3 about the mystery of God where He united Jews and Gentiles. Now in chapter 4, He turns a corner and tells us exactly what we should do in light of all of the things that God has already done. This same move from theology to practicality is also seen in places like Romans 12.1 and Colossians 3.5, if you'd like to check those out sometime. Each time Paul makes this transition from what God has done to what we should do, there's really a great lesson that Christians should hear. It's that doctrine and theology and beliefs about God are not just abstract ideas, are they? They should deeply influence how we live our lives. This is such an important thing for us to remember. Thinking the right things about God is great. Understanding Scripture properly is great. Understanding God to the best of our ability is great. But if it doesn't directly impact how we live our lives, then it doesn't matter all that much, does it? And this is why Paul lays out his letters like he does. Tell us what God has done. And then he's going to tell us what we should do because of that. So here we move to that section of how we can live in light of what Paul has, uh, in light of what God has done. Here's the first thing Paul urges the mature church to do. We're going to look at six of these. What does a mature church look like? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bear with one another in love. For the church to be mature, we must be characterized as humble and gentle and patient with one another. Don't you just love being around a humble person? Someone that doesn't seek credit but often deflects credit and deflects glory to others. We like being around people like that. I doubt there's a person here that doesn't enjoy being around a humble person. And on the other side of that, I doubt there's a person here uh, that doesn't hate being around an arrogant person, right? However, humility was not something that was greatly valued in the Greco-Roman world. Being humble was associated with being weak, being slave-like. The word meant to be low and insignificant. When thinking of the idea of humility, they would have thought of humiliation. The ancient Greeks had 147 short sayings that were inscribed on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. And these sayings were thought to be the sum and standard of ethics in the Greek world. A lot of them are really pretty good. They say things like, obey the law, respect your parents, be eager for wisdom. So there's definitely some biblical principles there. But what is interesting is that among these 147 sayings, there is no mention of humility. There's not even the mention of the idea of humility. They just didn't value it all that much. But they do mention loving honor and reputation and praise. Now the Greeks would say that it's, it's appropriate to humble yourself before the gods or before the emperor, but an equal... Never. A subordinate? That was unthinkable. There's no place for humbling yourself before people like that. But what does Jesus say? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. It sounds like Jesus knew a little bit about what the Greeks thought about humility. For the church to be mature, we must humble ourselves before God and before one another and put one another's needs before our own. We must never see a task as being beneath us. We should constantly be looking out for the greater good of the body of Christ and not dwell on what would make us as an individual happier. How else can we continue to mature as a church? In verses 3 through 6, Paul tells us that the mature church puts first things first. He says they are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one Lord, uh, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The mature church puts first things first. Isn't it funny to think about the silly things that divide people? Tom Rainer did a Twitter survey a few years back asking people to share the things that their churches fought harshly over or outright divided over. And the results were pretty interesting to say the least. 
There was a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the auditorium should be removed. Someone reported a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. This is very contentious. There was a major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used for years. Another reported that a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter, and then they decided to settle the dispute in the parking lot. Uh, So there are all kinds of things that divide people, all kinds of silly things that divide us, right? And we may laugh at these things, but I bet that in your life as a Christian, you have seen things that divide people that are just so terribly inconsequential. Paul tells us that the mature church puts first things first and doesn't divide and quarrel over peripheral issues. And what are the first things? What are the things that demand unity? What are the things of greatest importance? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One really cool thing about this list of the seven ones is how beautifully it highlights the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice how each of these things, these points of unity, are connected to a member of the Trinity. He first starts off with the Holy Spirit in verse 4 when he says there is one body and one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. So we see that it is the Spirit that creates and fills the body of Christ. Keeping first things first means understanding the unity that the Spirit brings to the body of Christ. The church isn't the Wild West where every person fends for themselves and does whatever they want, is it? No, it is one unified body of people that are straining toward a common goal together, that have the same Spirit in their members. Paul next mentions one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's no doubt that Lord here is a reference to Jesus. And he says that this one Lord we have contributes to us having one hope. Together all of us have the hope of Jesus returning back to take us to the place that he has prepared for us. We don't have different hopes, we have one hope. Our one Lord, Jesus, also gives us one faith. He is the object, the focus of our belief. It was his sacrifice on the cross that gave us all equal salvation and standing before God. And then as a result of that faith in Christ, we also participate in one baptism as we clothe ourselves with that one Lord, as Galatians 3.27 says. And finally, verse 6, Paul mentions God the Father as he says that we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. And in all. When I think of the idea of having a shared paternity, as Paul says here, I think of my brother Will, who some of you know. Now, Will has blonde hair, and he is taller than me, and he is bigger than me, and he has a different personality than me in a lot of ways. But despite all of those differences, we are family, and even the best of friends. Because even though we're different, we carry the same family name. 
This is the same idea that Paul conveys here. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles and different personalities and all kinds of different people. But because we share a common Father together, because we have that one Father who is in all of us and works through all of us, we are able to have unity and thrive as a church family. The mature church keeps first things first. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What else does the mature church look like? Verses 11 through 13 tell us that mature churches have mature leaders that equip them and hold them accountable. Before these verses, though, in verses 7 through 10, Paul says something kind of strange. He says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He talks about how Christ descended, which I think is a reference to Jesus leaving the heights of heaven and uh, uh, descending to the earth in his incarnation, and then ascending back to that place of honor. And verse 8 says that when he ascended, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In other words, when Jesus was resurrected and ascended back to the Father... He triumphed over the dark spiritual forces that we read about in the New Testament, but he also shared some of that victory with the church by giving us gifts. Now, what are those gifts that Christ distributed to the church? Verses 11 through 13, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Think for a moment about how blessed we are to have the writings of the apostles. What a gift, right? Think about how blessed we are to have godly men that serve us as shepherds here at sunset. They are Christ's gift to us. If you teach Bible class and are a teacher, as Paul says here, you are God's gift to us. And of course, this isn't a comprehensive list. God has given every single one of us that are in Christ spiritual gifts so that we can serve and upbuild the church. And when we utilize those talents, we are being the gift that Christ intended us uh, for us to be for the church. So this is kind of a side note here, but do you know what gift it is that you have or what ability that God has given you to help upbuild this congregation? If you are a baptized, spirit-filled believer, you have some unique ability that we need at sunset. Not just that we want to have or would like to have at sunset, But you have something that we need here at Sunset. If you aren't sure about what that is, I would encourage you to spend some considerable time praying about that. Or maybe meeting with our shepherds to discuss that because it is important that we all work together and utilize the unique talents that God has blessed each one of us with. You would not be at Sunset Church of Christ if God didn't think that we could use you and your abilities. God has placed you at this congregation for a very specific reason. And if you don't know what that reason is, I would encourage you to really think about that. But anyway, back to apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Paul says we have these specific roles so that we can be equipped for works of service and grow in our spiritual maturity. The mature church has leaders that make sure people are equipped to serve the world around them. And they also make sure that people aren't growing stagnant in their growth. 
And I'm thankful that at Sunset we have leaders like this that take very seriously this call to mature and equip and hold the church accountable. Number four, this is probably my favorite one in the list of six. The mature church isn't shaken by doctrinal fads or societal trends. Verse 14. Paul describes the mature church as not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Listen, at any given time, on any given year, whether we are in 2020 or 1020, there are things that go on in, in society and in the religious world that attempt to weaken the witness of the church and the truths of Scripture. In the early church, for instance, there were the docetists that taught that Jesus didn't really take on human flesh. They said God wouldn't stoop so low that he would actually take on human flesh. So Jesus just seemed to. Of course, Scripture affirms that Jesus did really come in the flesh and he had a body that was exactly like yours and mine. Nowadays, you might hear people say that there are many paths to the same God. As if God is at the top of the mountain and there are many different roads that you can go up to meet him on. But Jesus says, I am the way. In every generation, there are new doctrinal statements that are made that people follow. A mature church doesn't get blown around by what people say, but they are firmly rooted in what scripture has always said. What about in society? There's a lot happening in our society right now, isn't there? Um, there's a lot happening in our society. Take the election, for instance. The immature church gets bogged down in politics. But the mature church stands firmly united even when others are divided. I think the best example of this comes from Jesus' own group of disciples. There are two names that really stand out when the gospel writers name who these men were. Simon the tax collector, and, uh, or I'm sorry, Matthew the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. So we have Matthew, who was a Jew that was employed by the Roman government, and we have Simon the zealot, who was part of an anti government group whose greatest desire was to overthrow the Romans. So, how do we have an, a pro government person and an anti government person that coexist and are united? as apostles and disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus united them despite their differences. This isn't to say that we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't have opinions and shouldn't discuss things. Of course we should. But I think the key that Paul is conveying here is that immature Christians divide and quarrel and are blown around by such earthly things. And mature Christians remain united and weather storms together, even when the entire world seems to be divided. What else does a mature church look like? Well, Paul tells us in verse 15 that mature churches speak the truth in love. Don't you appreciate how Paul gives us two ways that we need to speak to one another and to the world? He says that we must speak the truth in love. I bet all of us know someone that speaks the truth without love. And I think we all probably know people who speak love but don't necessarily have the truth. The church should be characterized by its truth and its love. You know, I'm so grateful for people throughout my life that have pulled me aside and have gently guided me into a greater understanding 
of the truth. But there's also been people here and there along the way that have not been so gracious when telling me the truth, right? And guess which kind of person I've learned the most from? That's right, the person that understood this, the person that told me the truth, didn't compromise the truth, but they told me the truth in love. For us to have the kind of influence that we want to have on our community and in the world, we must never compromise the truth, but always speak it in love. Truth and love, one can't be emphasized over the other. To neglect either the truth or love is to be incomplete in our Christian witness. And finally, a mature church has each and every member engaged in ministry. Paul says in verse 16 that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice how many times in this verse Paul emphasized every member of the body. It is each individual member that allows the church to grow and mature. I know we've already mentioned this a little bit, but I don't think that this can be overstated. For Sunset to operate as God intends for us to, for us to be a light in this community as, as God has called us to be, for us to grow and mature like we would like to, Paul says that it's going to take all of us to accomplish these things. It doesn't matter if you're 9 or 99. God has gifted you to be a blessing to our congregation. God has put people in your life that the gospel would not reach if you were not the one bringing it to them. The mature church has every single member engaged in ministry. As we look back on this list here of all of these things that a mature church does, I'm reminded of the fact that no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, whether that be as an individual or at a congregational level, we still have more to do, don't we? We still have further to go. As I heard a teacher of mine uh, one time say, in many ways we are a Charlie Brown church. And by church, I don't mean sunset necessarily, but the church in universal terms. We are a Charlie Brown church. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you look at Charlie Brown and other Peanuts characters, you'll notice that they all have these giant, fully developed, fully mature heads on these little, tiny, kid-like bodies. It kind of makes for a funny cartoon, doesn't it? But look again at Paul's words in verse 15. He says it is our job to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We are a Charlie Brown church. Christ is our fully grown, mature head, and we are the body that oftentimes is disproportionate to our head. The question is, how can you as an individual and we as a church continue to grow and mature this body so that we can grow up into our head, so that we can mature our body as much as possible, so that we can look more and more like Christ? Well, these six things that we talked about provide a, a good start but maybe all of us need to do some serious praying and contemplation about where we're at on our journey of faith. Maybe this morning you're here and you have grown stagnant in your walk. Maybe you, were, you started off well, as the parable of Jesus says, but the cares of this world choked out the faith and the excitement in you. 
Maybe you need the prayers of this congregation so that you can continue your, your walk and continue, continue your uh, maturity in the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian. You haven't even began your walk in Christ. Uh, maybe you need to put on Christ in baptism so that you can begin this path of growing up into our head that is Jesus. If you need anything at all from, uh, from the shepherds, from anybody this morning, we would love to help you in any way that we can as we stand and sing together.